Nicholas Whiteholtzai. This is the most insect sounding frog. <laughs> See, this is, now, looking behind the curtain here, Tom is face palming. You sent me a recording of a frog that is so well documented that we have a little bit of voiceover at the beginning <laughs> saying the name of the frog before it starts. You <laughs> <laughs> should have cut that out of there, I didn't realise. No, that's brilliant. Uh, well, can you guess what it is, Ben? Well... To be honest, Can you even remember what I he forget said? what the guy said. <laughs> <laughs> he says it really fast, and they're quite unfamiliar words. So. But I stand by my point. Of it, is, it is an insect-sounding little creature, and I would assume it being exceptionally small. And I feel like it's a forest-dwelling beast. I feel like it's going to be high, and it's going to be a tree frog from South America, a small one, a little one, and. Okay. I heard the scientific name at the beginning, but like, as I say, I can't. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could probably hear it said three or four times before I could actually grasp what the guy said. But yeah, that was a bit of a. Uh... Uh, yeah, it's going to be the mini Chilean uh, locust frog. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think this frog has a common name, mate, to be honest. I've not been able to find one. So um, oh. unless you're going to come up with. Uh... That I. Oh, it does have a common name. Oh, and it's quite nice. Oh. Oh, this is cool. Okay, great. Yeah, so the frog, you were guessing it was small. You were saying it was from like South America, right? Yeah. In the trees. Yep. One out of three, not bad. <laughs> it's actually a very small frog. It is tiny. We're talking 18 to 23 millimeters. So that's oh, like the width of, mini, width of mini your frog. thumb. And um, it's called Afrixalis wideholzi. Wideholzi. And... Uh, the common name is Wideholtz banana frog or Wideholtz's leaf folding frog. Ah, oh, okay. It's actually from West Africa. So it's from savannas in sort of like the Congo. It's quite a sort of unusual looking. I mean, it's not that unusual. It's sort of golden colored with a sort of broad, dark lateral stripe on the sides from the snout to the groin. So it's like golden with like dark stripes down either side. And they, what they tend to do, that noise you heard, you're right. It's really insecty, and you can actually tell it's from a small frog, can't you? It's kind of strange. Like it has that vibe. But I mean, we've yeah. been tricked before with some frogs sounding larger than they are. This that's true. Yeah, so, some frogs is you some can't frogs always trust a frog. Pretty bassy. But this guy, so when they're calling, they tend to call from like dense, low grass growing on flooded soil. So they're sort of hanging around in sort of like flooded hmm. grasslands. They're very inconspicuous. Apparently, they're very hard to spot. And yeah, the reason they're called the grass folding frog is because when they lay their eggs, they actually imagine a blade of grass, mm -hmm. but bend it in half, but like uh, lengthwise. Yes, lengthwise, exactly. Bend it in half so you're like folding it in, like, yeah. you know, as if you were going to sort of like blow through it as a whistle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they fold it like that and then they the jelly that comes out with the eggs glues the leaf together and then the leaf kind of serves to sort of, I don't know, I guess protect the eggs or just keep them there and sort of keep them in one place in these like sort of flooded grasslands. A bit grasslands. of camouflage as well too, probably. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they only lay about 10 and they're completely clear. They're unpigmented eggs. Hmm. So that's quite, that's quite fascinating. an unusual little thing. It's a nice thing to have named them for. Yes. But yeah, they're not just found in the Congo. They're found also in Gambia and Senegal. To be honest, their actual distribution isn't hugely well known. Well, if they're very hard to find, then... Hard to find, yeah. and in the Congo as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, tricky, 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 tricky. Yeah, but just a, a cool little frog. I listened to a bunch of frog sounds and I really liked that one. So yeah, I, I can see why. That. And with a wonderful bit of natural history charm to go alongside it. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, not bad, not bad. And uh, just a shame that I ballsed up that guy telling you what it was, but luckily <laughs> you didn't really hear it. So yeah. Hey, it was always going to happen eventually, dude. <laughs> These beautiful library recordings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's good. This, yeah, AmphibioWeb. Shout out AmphibioWeb. Really cool. Um, fun. If you're looking for sort of resources to do with frog sounds, AmphibioWeb has got you covered. Good starting place, yeah. Yeah. So um, from a frog with a sort of unusual grass folding strategy to a lizard with an unusual mouth folding strategy, let's talk about this paper, which is a potential dimatic display revealed in a lizard by Whiting, Noble and Chi. 2022 Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society as well. Our episode last week was also from the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. So they're doing work over there. It'd be nice if they were easier to access the papers, but yeah. Yes, true. Yeah, well, we got this one. Straight from the authors, I think. Straight from the authors. Yeah. So yeah, we're talking about Phrynocephalus mystaceus, which is the toad-headed agama or the secret toad-headed agama, which is from family Agamidae. So the sort of agamid lizards, as they're known. a massive family. How many agamid lizards are there out there? Oh, go and guess. I'll guess two and then we'll Google it. I'm going to say 1,000. Oh, I'm going 1,652. Oh, it's over 300. So we're both wow, dramatically off. <laughs> what are you going to do? But yeah, there's lots of agamids. They're sort of known. It feels like, like Iguan- there's over a thousand. <laughs> Iguanian style. And they're indigenous to Africa, Asia, Australia, and Southern Europe. That's the whole sort of family agamidae. But this little guy, the Phrynocephalus mystaceus, the toad-headed agama, is just a bonkers looking little lizard. Similar to the frilled lizards from Australia, they have this like crazy display. And we have talked about them on the podcast before. That- we have. This is why we jumped at this paper, because we had discussed them, I feel, ages ago, like years ago, in fact. And I don't think there was any particularly interesting paper that we found about them. So they've just sort of, they've been there in my mind with these guys and, um, oh my gosh, so, uh, Pseudocerastes arachnoides. The, um, oh, yeah. Spider-tailed, spider-tailed viper. viper to me they're like just the pinnacle of insane reptilian adaptations they're just yeah, so so unique they're just creatures that people would come up with in fiction and we're lucky enough to share a world with them where they're actually real yeah that is a high praise but i think they deserve it they do. and so yeah, like I said, like the frilled lizard, this little toad-headed agama, they have these extra large flaps on the side of the mouth. And when they're just relaxed, they're just folded in. You wouldn't even notice they were there. They look a little bit chubby. They've got quite hilariously round head when they're not, <laughs> when they're just yeah. chilling. They're a little bit jowly. Yeah. Um, but when they're, um, well, this paper is about why they might do it. But when they feel like it, they can extend them out. And uh, they basically open these flaps out and they form this like spiky edged bright pink frill, kind of like uh, the Dilophosaurus in Jurassic Park. But except for that was on the neck. And the same with the frill lizard. That's the sort of neck frill that comes up. With these guys, it's actually just all on the head. And it sort of like yeah. comes out to the like side. Like their cheeks explode outwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is like this bright pink color. Quite startling, you might say. Um this, the name of this species is cool, actually, if a bit confusing. So Phrynocephalus, 
Mistasius. The Mistasius bit, it's named after their appearance, which is apparently thought to be fascinating, like a sorcerer. <laughs> okay. Uh, the epithet Mistasius, it means it's from the suffix ace, which means of the nature of. So it sort of means resembling and mister, which means mystery. And apparently, so it's sort of like resembling a mystery, but it's taken to mean resembling a priest of the mysteries and secret rites of divine worship. <laughs> what? So basically, it's like yeah, well, somebody they traditionally thought... had very large cheeks that they would scare the masses with stories of mystery and, and wonder. <laughs> yeah, so it, it doesn't make any sense. It's like kind of like okay, so there's like sorcerers. I mean, like sorcerers, I guess. Yeah, mysterious. Yeah, basically, it's all about like why think... the hell do they have this? Yeah, exactly. So instead of you thinking about denotations you're thinking about connotations and you're thinking mystery and you're thinking appearance and this is a what appears to be quite a regular lizard but it has a mysterious surprise and that's uh-huh. makes it yeah 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 it's more like general a sorcerer. It's, less, it's less specific you see a sort you know i mean you come across a sorcerer looks like just some normal sort of character right and they're sort of bowling along in their cloak suddenly fireball yeah surprise you would Mistacious. never have known in these yeah. cases suddenly whoa look at my cheeks Yes. Bow down before me. And yeah. yeah. And these guys are found in the desert. So this study took place in northwest China in the Tukai Desert, which is in Xinjiang province. And this is a sandy desert. It's got shifting dunes, very sparse vegetation. And these little lizards, the Phrynocephalus mustaceus, the toad-headed agalmas, they're most common in what's called the dune streets, which are the low-lying areas between the dunes, which are typically sort of slightly sheltered from the wind because mm. of the dunes around them. And in these dune streets, the mean streets of the dunes, they actually live in little burrows. So I imagine the sort of slightly damp sand in the recesses of the dunes, quite conducive to a nice burrow. We all know that kind of sand where you poke your finger in and it holds your burrow. Yeah, it stays steady, steady. And it's these guys presumably because it's cooler down there as well. Classic desert creature uh, response to high temperatures. Get in the dune streets. And, you know, I think the the kind of picture we've painted of the dune streets, it sounds like it's quite a laid back environment, but it isn't. In fact, it's not at all a laid back environment for these toad headed agamas because lots of animals want to devour them, including birds and the dreaded snakes. And given this hostile environment, it's kind of always been assumed that these lizards use their flap display when they're confronted by predators to sort of startle them into hesitating. Like, you know, you're about to eat a delicious lizard. What's that? Flash of pink. Yeah, they bring up in the introduction the uh, blue tongue skinks. And I'm pretty positive we covered a paper previously on blue tongue skinks using their tongues and their tongues being particularly bright for certain predators, right? That's where we Why were they the blue? dimatic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, blue, weird, out of nowhere. Yeah, catches you off like, guard. That moment of hesitation gives the lizard or whoever it is a chance to get away and get into its little burrow or under a rock. Or in these cases, they seem to be incredibly fast. <laughs> yeah, they're little joggers. But in addition to this suggestion that they were using it to freak out predators, there was also this idea that it might be used for communication between lizards, mm-hmm. or even that perhaps it evolved because the opposite sex finds the pink frills very attractive or maybe because um it's actually dangerous the lizard so maybe like if a particular individual lizard has big frills another lizard might think oh don't want to trifle with that one because look at the size of those frills and they wanted to kind of unpick all this yeah because it's also important that it might not be any one of those things too just because it's evolved as a 
something to spook a bird in the last seconds before you get grabbed doesn't mean that it can't be sort of co-opted into something else. Exactly, you know, yeah. It might evolve as a startle tactic and then suddenly, you know, the males or females might suddenly decide actually that's a good trait. Exactly. Sexual selection picks up and then, yeah, it, go, it turns from one thing to another. Yeah, yeah. So they did the classic thing, these scientists. They lassoed themselves a bunch of lizards and they conducted a number of trials. Some of the lizards actually weren't lassoed, but m- many of them were lassoed, the ones that were taking place in arenas. There were some trials in arenas and some trials out of arenas. And they wanted to try and see how the flaps were used. So I think because it's less interesting, let's just kind of get it out of the way. They didn't use the flaps to communicate with other lizards. They tried putting them in arenas together, right. like put a lizard in the arena, let another lizard in the arena. And they never showed their flaps. And then they tried this hilarious thing where they like found an unsuspecting wild lizard. So just a toad-headed gamma minding its business. And then they had a, a toad-headed gamma they caught earlier. They tied it up with a bit of uh, fishing line. I think it was, it was floss. I think it was, yeah, it's, it's not even fishing line, right? Floss. Yeah, okay, I, I think floss. so. They certainly mentioned dental floss because I think it's you want something a little bit softer than fishing line. Yeah, I was thinking the fishing line. That's kind of why I said gently, gently, because I was thinking, ah, that uh, sounds a bit harsh. But yeah, floss. I mean, floss is soft for days, you know, rub yeah. that stuff in your gums and then like that. <laughs> so yeah, they tied the lizards to this floss and then they attached them to a little stick. And what they would do is like come up behind a lizard that wasn't expecting it and then lower the other lizard down and see if that would initiate the flap <laughs> response. They never flapped in as a response to a surprise flying lizard. What they did do in response to the other lizards a lot was use their tails. So their tails can kind of bend up in like a sort of scorpion shape. Sort of like, um, you know, those things that you like flick around your wrist. You know, the things that you like click it out, it goes straight. And then you those those slap it magnetic down. bracelet things. Yeah. yeah I know what it's you're talking about. It's sort of like that, yeah, yeah. the way the tail goes. And they sort of like and they do have crimp a little, it, uncrimp it. Like a black tip to their tail as well, which sort of backs up that this is some sort of signaling some sort of marker that they can see because i mean you've got this quite pale tan lizard with very black distinct you know ink dipped tail yeah yeah so that's the main way they communicate with each other is using their little tails but let's get on to the flaps what about flaps and predators so they did the classic thunderdome thing they put the lizards in the arena one at a time and what they did was they didn't stretch to a stuffed bird in this one they just had a laminated piece of cardboard with a <laughs> printout a of a bird on it <laughs> yeah on a stick or a kestrel specifically yeah and um yeah they were like putting the lizards in the arena and then swooping the fake bird over them and generally they ran away in most cases they ran away running away was far and away their most popular strategy of escaping this cardboard cutout of a bird now, they did occasionally flare their, flare their flaps, but it was only in sort of like 3% of cases. It wasn't very much. It was only very seldom. So it kind of seemed to the authors that a bird just swooping over isn't really enough of a reason for these lizards to get their flaps out. Yeah, fleeing is the uh, primary solution to not getting got when, when you're seeing it coming. Yeah, if the bird's just swooping on by, yeah, just leave it. However... That was sort of like, okay, they weren't really happy with that. I got the sense. They were just sort of like, well, that's not really much flap use. We need to do something else. Well, exactly, because you, you know that they do use their flaps. Otherwise, they wouldn't have them. And there are images of them using them. So it's like, what actually drives that? What When are they using them? It must be something. Exactly. They're not just, they haven't evolved these insane flaps for no reason. Right. So then they thought they'd try the surprising lizards thing again. And what they did this time was they found an unsuspecting lizard 
in the middle of the dunes and um, they'd go crouch down by it for a few minutes let the lizard get used to the idea wait till it was sort of behaving normally mooching around again and then suddenly they'd fly this fake bird over them they got a few more flaps responses from that but still only about 12 percent so you know of all the lizards they flew the bird over surprising them in the wild only just over 10 percent thought that was a good enough reason to use the flaps defensively which is still a little bit unsatisfying so the team went back to the drawing board and they thought okay let's see what can we do so they decided that they would use the lassoing of lizards as an experiment and this is how they captured the lizards originally for the study anywhere in the arena they lassoed them so this is where you have like some as we now know floss on a stick and you just tie a little lasso in the end of it and you lower it down over the lizard's head and then pull it up and it pulls tight and it grabs the lizard so what they did was they basically used the lassoing of a lizard as like a surprise attack. So instead of having anything actually like get them, they'd just lasso them and then lift them off the ground. And as it turns out, the lizards did perceive that as being attacked by a predator and it did cause them to show their flap display. And actually the majority of males, females and juveniles when lassoed would respond by showing their flaps. Yeah, what are we talking like? Yes, 67 for males, 89 for females, and 75 for juveniles. And then percent of, yep. percent of them are, that are deploying their flaps to freak out the uh, lasso to no avail, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. as it turns out, the person doing the lassoing was an indifferent titan. Exactly. I mean, how do you defend against that? Not with fear's not going to work. No, but I have to say, if I just was like sort of scuttling around in the dunes and I saw a little brown lizard and I just didn't know anything about them and I grabbed it and it turned around and did that, yeah, I'd drop it. It makes a lot of sense why you would get spooked by this. It, it's a very, yeah, I mean, number one, it's just a bizarre display, but it being attached to the mouth as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like your gut instinct would be like, oh my god, it's way more powerful, way more capable of biting me and causing damage than I anticipated. Yeah, it's actually very Demigorgon from Stranger Things, mm -hmm. the appearance of the flaps. I Actually, now that I think about it, that is so clearly what they looked at before they created that monster. I feel like there's quite a few monstery sort of things that have, yeah, like mouth that looks small and then gets a lot bigger. I feel like that's quite a classic classic horror -y trope for yeah. movie monsters because mm. i mean like you can think about the dogs in the thing and by extension the dogs in resident evil have equivalent sort of small visible mouth translating into something larger and scarier yeah yeah that's very true yeah it's very true well it obviously works it starts right birds. It right and us. for these guys we, it, we've got a study here that I mean, probably doesn't close the book on it exactly because there's a lot of questions regarding the sort of timing and where's the threshold where it moves from being best to run away to best to using these spooky mouth flaps. But I think it's relatively convincing that it's not anything connected to courtship or male-male competition because there was just so little of that. Or in the case of the courtship, they couldn't even get the experiment running because they didn't. The, the lizards weren't bothered. So, yeah, it's, I feel pretty convincing. I feel like it's relatively clear that it's a, I was going to say like secondary defense mechanism, I guess, over running because mm. running's preferred in cases, but also it doesn't feel very fair because the scenarios are different. Like being grabbed is quite different to seeing a predator coming. So yeah. it's, it does seem to be saved for these ambush scenarios. It's quite interesting because uh, in the course of reading this paper, uh, there was a few things that they cited about birds and their kind of like startle displays. Mm -hmm. And in birds, 
in at least in some birds, it seems that actually the opposite is true, where if they've got a flash of bright colors, they tend to flee long before a predator comes near them. They actually have like long flee time. So they'll flee much more quickly than other animals and demonstrate this flash early on and then just go. And they think that that's because that works slightly differently, where a bird will take off, show its flash of color, and then the predator will be looking for that flash of color. But the bird right. will have changed it back have to its like withdrawn. camouflage state. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like obviously... a magician's smoke <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's something that sort of draws your attention while it's yeah. making its getaway. And the contrast between bright and not bright, you know, it, it creates that, that, that dissidence between what you're looking for and what you're actually, exactly. actually seeing. Yeah. Squid ink, I guess, is sort of... Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But like if the squid ink was, was sparkly and glorious. Pink. Yeah. yeah, that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah. Glitter squids. Squid ink pasta's a thing, isn't it? Your squid ink pasta just looks a bit gross. If that's a way of scaring someone off, then yes, just like <laughs> squid ink pasta. <laughs> squid ink pasta. You throw, scaring throw off the pasta at your predator and then run out of the kitchen. Right on. So there we go. I think that pretty much ties up our episode on dimatic displays, which is the sort of... Um, shocking display that these lizards present with their crazy little mouths the toad headed a gamma i'm really pleased this paper came out i think it's super cool and it is nice it to is. Uh, actually see the what these toad headed a gammas are using that startle display for yeah i mean they, we didn't go into it but they did a little bit of work on working out how bright the flaps are and whether that was different between males and females to see if there was like a brightness thing so maybe it was still a, a sexual selection thing but they just didn't get the behaviours out. They couldn't actually see that. Right. But I think it was only luminance that was slightly different between males and females, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Whereas the colour and, and stuff was the same. Yeah, it's wonderful. It sets the ground for all sorts of more intricate studies, like I suppose so many of these studies do. But wow, are these lizards deserving of more attention? They're absolutely fascinating and I love them to bits. <laughs> yeah, they're super, super cool. So have you got any other business? I don't. I have nothing at all. Okay, I have one piece of other business. It was just this little paper that came out that I thought was cool. It's by Petrovan et al. So this is a team from Cambridge University, and it came out actually just a couple of weeks ago. And it's all about toads, basically. The British toads that we have here, Bufo Bufo, Common Toad, the OG toad. and <laughs> they... OG in terms of naming, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know where they sit in terms of the evolution of toads, but yeah, so we have these like terrestrial toads and they're thought to be like pretty terrestrial because they have heavy bodies and short limbs and no one's really looking for them in the trees, certainly not herpetologists. But then this is a paper all about why it's important to link citizen science surveys. So there was a bunch of citizen scientists oh, undertaking yes. many yeah. hundreds of surveys looking for uh, dormice, the hazel dormouse. And um, yeah, they basically just kept finding toads in their nest boxes, yeah. like a lot of times. And it turns out that that's something that toads in the UK are doing. They're going up into trees and just hanging out in holes. I'm not which... surprised of them like stealing nest boxes. I feel like that's a classic toad. You know, there's there's good studies on uh, the cane toads of Australian, uh, Australia taking over bee eater burrows and stuff bee eaters that's, the that's their burrows they're in the side of banks and things like that so oh well, imagine that you're an innocent little bird and this fat off cane toad comes yeah, and takes your hole your and 
Yeah. Probably eats you as well. I've, I mean, they're toads, so I mean, I wouldn't put it past <laughs> Toads, mate. They're just, what are they up to? But anyway, these guys, I mean, that is a surprise to me. Definitely. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. But yeah, the paper is sort of largely about the sort of freakiness of this behavior, but then also just like the fact that, yeah, it's really important. Not only if you are someone who's surveying for a particular animal type and you keep seeing another animal type, let the people who study those animals know too, and they might be really interested by it. And yeah, it basically, you know, they're saying that the reason these toads are going up into these nest boxes, because the hazel dormice nest in these little nest boxes in trees, as I understand it, and they sort of like tree cavities. Mm -hmm. But they're saying the toads like them too, because it's damp, which they love. And there's usually an abundance of invertebrates as well. So toad paradise. Yeah, there's this possible sort of new dynamic to toad conservation, which may need to be considered in terms of their, their tree hole use. Or new dynamic for these dormice too for uh you need to make dormice homes that are less suitable for toads or have a sort of toad deterrent aspect to it or build double the home so both the toads have a home and the dormice have the home i think it would be really funny if you could build a nest box that was designed to have like a toad side and a dormouse side and then have them as like unlikely neighbors yeah we love those papers that are sort of unlikely neighbour-like scenarios. We've had the snakes and the ants. We've had the uh, monitor lizards and a huge number of species that were living in the uh, monitor lizard uh, yeah, warrens. In Australia. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, really cool. But anyway, I thought it was worth a mention. Um, I'll put the link to the paper in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, well, I think that pretty much ties up the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can at hurphighlights at gmail.com. Also, just to thank the patrons uh, who keep the podcast going. So generous of people to donate. And um, we do have some benefits for people who decide to do so. Like you can pick a topic for an episode, which we've got a couple of episodes from patrons upcoming. If you want to do that, you go to patreon.com slash hurphighlights. Similarly, massively appreciated. Keeping uh, covers our costs and it's such a wonderful thing to have because it means no adverts or anything nasty like that creeping in and, uh, you know, alternative ways of covering costs. It's wonderful having the people that enjoy it cover it and uh, keep it free and open for everyone. Yeah, and thanks to our patrons. We haven't actually mentioned on the podcast, but we have an editor now. We have an editor called Emmy, who's fantastic. And many of you who've listened for a long time have probably noticed the dramatic uptick in the quality of the <laughs> podcast. Some increase in quality of the editing. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason we sound professional now, we're not doing anything different. It's all Emmy. So yeah, big thanks to Emmy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just great. And it's all thanks to the patrons. So yeah, thanks very much. And um, yeah, as I say, follow us on Instagram at Herp Highlights. We're on Twitter and Facebook too. And yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. 